Well, the great thing about preaching through a book like James is that you have to preach every part of it. The challenging thing about preaching through a book is that you have to preach every part of it, even the bits that are very difficult and make us feel very uncomfortable. And there are some very difficult passages in James. Emma reminded us a few weeks ago that James feels like a punch in the guts. Well, this morning it feels like a punch in the guts, a slap in the face, and a stab in the heart. So there you go. I bet you're glad you came this morning. But this is a particularly difficult subject, particularly for our culture. And uh, first slide in the, in the screen is, remember when we were uh, going through primary school, you were taught to watch out for danger in the road. It was um, stop, look, and listen. Uh, so you have to stop at the edge, looking right and left, listening you know, one way and then the other for where the cars are coming. Before you crossed the road, stop, look, and listen. Well, there's something in that in the passage of Scripture that we have. We're going to look at it the other way because that's the way James looks at it. He says, listen, look, stop. And so we're going to take that well-known trio of words, flip them round, and follow through James chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. So let's go to those verses. Now listen. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another. Stop grumbling against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, when we read these words, there's a danger that we immediately think of someone else. We have our minds set on someone else. Now, listen, you rich people. Oh, that means somebody else. Who are the rich? Well, that depends on what part of the spectrum or the line of poverty and wealth you live on or stand on. 
So for instance, if, uh, if you were to stand on the spectrum of wealth to poverty and you just looked at the situation in Perth, then quite easily you could probably find someone and say, ah, rich, and, and I feel poor. And if you widen that out a little bit, so in Perth we have someone who's very rich and someone who feels that they're poor. So let's stand on the person of the poor. If you widen that out to Scotland and to some of the bigger cities, to Glasgow, Dundee, you'll discover that actually many of us who think we're in a place of poverty may actually discover that on the spectrum of wealth to poverty, we might be a little richer than we thought. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but I've spent most of my life in the east end of Glasgow, and I wondered where all the money was. And I discovered that there's quite a bit of it around up here. But, but that's not it, because if you just sit in Scotland, you don't get the full picture of the spectrum of poverty, because if, if you were to look across the whole of the world and were to try and work out a rich poverty, rich, poor, wealth, poverty spectrum, you discover that most of us in the UK and Scotland and Perth and in the Western world are rich in comparison to the spectrum of poverty that takes you right away beyond and out this door. Who are the rich? Depends where you're standing on the line. And it's sometimes easy for us to think it's somebody else when it might, in fact, be us. You can put up the next slide, thanks. But while we're thinking about wealth and poverty and our place in it, this is a from a 2012 report from Oxfam about wealth that is hoarded. that in a global wealth of uh, 96 trillion, a third of it was locked up in tax havens with a loss of $189 billion in tax revenues that could have gone to the good of those who are the poorest in our world. Next slide. This is from 2021 um, survey from Credit Suisse Global Wealth. Uh, the 1.1% of the global population held nearly half of the world's total wealth. And 55% of the population, only 1.3% of total wealth. Now I'm drawing comparisons here of wealth and poverty. Uh, uh, what I see is alarming gaps. But before you start pointing fingers anywhere, actually in these middle sections where most of us operate, 11.1% of the population, of global population, hold 39.1% of wealth. And 32 point, uh, 13.7 hold 
which is probably the category that most of us might be in. Huge wealth-poverty divide. Next slide. And where do we sit as a nation in this? Well, it's a map uh, of the world based on wealth per adult. And as you'll see, the UK, along with most of Europe and the Americas, North America, Australia, that sits in our domain. So what I'm saying is we're the wealthy. And I appreciate that global economics is a complicated matter and that working out how to use, invest, and circulate wealth, capital, is not straightforward. But the rich-poor gap and the impact are already too great and continuing to grow. Now, let me be clear, this is not a promotion or a criticism of any specific political model or party or preference or theory. All human political and economic systems are imperfect because it always involves people. But the idea of trickle-down economics is at best that, a trickle. Actually, wealth seems to rise upwards and sticks there. Sticky money. And it takes determined, consistent intent to reverse that. And in truth, most people in the UK have no idea what the realities of poverty are. They've never experienced the constant pressure, anxiety, shame that people live with every day looking towards the end of the week because most of them don't get paid monthly. They're just trying to make end meet on a day, whether to heat or eat. And the pressure that that puts on them, they are surviving. Some of the most resilient people I've met are some of the poorest people that I've met. As day to day, they wrestle and struggle with the pressure of just living. And I know I come from a perspective because I was spent most of my life in one of the poorest communities in Scotland. I had a split upbringing. All the benefits and privileges of a suburban middle class family and private schooling. And then every week being in the east end of Glasgow and sitting alongside people who wished that they could have had what I had. And I learned much from them. The generational unemployment that has taken place in all kinds of communities of the socioeconomic impact, the challenge of the inner cities is so obvious to me. But this is not a political or socioeconomic discussion. We're in the Bible. And the narrative we read is the one that's in the Bible. That's the one that matters. And the Bible has a lot to say about poverty and wealth. It is one of the Bible's most commonly visited themes. 
You can't read the Old Testament law or prophets. You can't read Jesus in the Gospels without realizing that the Bible speaks of the destructive and constructive potential for a just and equitable economy and society where the wealth poverty gap is shrunk and where there is parity across the people. You go into the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee is celebrated in Leviticus 25. It's one of the most radical ideas in the Bible that every 50 years, every Israelite was supposed to return to their original piece of allotted land and any debt or enslavement on that land was erased, forgiven, released. Do you know what that did? It provided a reset, a restart, a reboot for families in every generation. Even the ones who'd ended up in the worst of situations because of whatever the economic situations were, there was a reset button intended for every 50 years so that the family could get back the land that was theirs so that they then may be able to work it and earn a living. Debt was erased, enslavement was erased, they were released the day of Jubilee. And the Jubilee would have effectively prevented cycles of intergenerational poverty. That's what, I've, that's what I see in somewhere like the East End of Glasgow. Just goes from one generation to the next to the next. And instead it would create a social and economic equality that would have made Israel unique among the nations. It was to be an economic and social system ultimately based on mercy, not merit. Mercy, not merit. Next slide. Poverty is more than money. Can be income, employment, education, health, access to services, crime, housing. That's how the Scottish uh, index of multiple, multiple deprivation looks at and tries to understand poverty. But I've seen this generationally repeat over and over again in the world that I've inhabited for most of my life in ministry. Next slide. And the Bible speaks less of a meritocracy and more of a mercytocracy. That's what Jubilee was intended to do. It was an act of mercy for those who were living in poverty and who had no longer anything to work. It was a response of God's mercy with the possibilities and potential of grace and a new start. Meritocracy, that was a system of religion. What you did for the gods, for the idols, But through Israel, God established a jubilee that was based on mercy so that every generation of a family could get a new start. And Jesus came announcing jubilee. That's what Luke 4.19 is all about. That Jesus came to declare the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of jubilee. Reflecting on this, N.T. Wright says, 
As we know in our own day, anyone who suggests forgiving the poor their debts will be laughed at by the rich. However, when the great credit crisis of 2008 struck the Western world, the rich themselves lined up to have their debts forgiven at the cost of the taxpayer. And several governments meekly did what they asked. One law for the rich, another for the poor. It was ever thus. So this is big, important stuff. But our relationship with money also has a personal as well as a social impact. And it has a spiritual impact as well as an economic one. So let's go back to James 5, 1 to 3. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Next slide. What can I even say about this? When James says, listen, he raises the issue of the unprofitable accumulation of wealth. The storing up of unprofitable wealth. And I don't mean by that financially. But what are we making our accumulated wealth do? Next slide. Craig Blomberg, commentator in the book of James, says, we suffer from affluenza. What a great word. An affluent culture turns our hearts towards fleeting satisfactions and away from God has a spiritual impact. Well, unprecedented prosperity has left our lives full, but not necessarily fulfilled. The problem is not that we've tried faith and found it wanting, but we've tried mammon and found it addictive. And as a result, find following Christ inconvenient. It's the question over what are we doing with our money? What are we accumulating and for what? And what does God call us to do with what he has given us? The unprofitable accumulation of wealth that touches nothing of the kingdom of God and produces within us a spiritual level that becomes inconvenient when God asks us to do something that is uncomfortable. How do we spend? How do we invest? How do we save? For what purpose? For what good? For whom to profit? For those who are investors, do we invest ethically? Perhaps we need to invest less for our own good and more for the good of others. More useful. Just use what we have rather than worrying about what we will eat or drink or wear tomorrow. 
Let me read to you what the Sermon on the Mount says from Matthew 6, 19 to 24. You'll need to go back one slide. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are, un are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. What's your relationship with money? We've known people who've chosen to invest more time in kingdom work than they did to earn, save, or invest more money. They just said, you know, we'll work three days or four days, and then we'll use the rest to invest in a completely different way, because I only need what I need. What's your relationship with money? Let's go on again to James 5, 4 to 6. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgent. You've fattened yourselves on the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James from listen to Luke. Luke, the unjust systems and unthoughtful luxury. Next slide. Look, the unjust systems and unthoughtful luxury. That there are systems that are not right, that create its own injustice in our world. And that we almost take luxury as if it's our right. We become unthoughtful in all that we have. Brian Stevenson is an American lawyer, social justice activist, law professor, author of the book Just Mercy. And he said this, the opposite of poverty is not wealth, but justice. So much of what we just take for granted in our systems and even in our own luxury are issues of injustice that need to be reversed with justice. And the problem of wealth is dealt with by the personal and collective pursuit and action of justice. It's intentional. We have to seek it. You cannot separate the gospel and the kingdom of God from the unjust socioeconomic systems or from our personal unthoughtful luxury. And that demands intentional action. And I'm including myself in this. Let me just remind you of two stories that actually are back to back in Luke's gospel, Luke 18 and 19. Two, two men that have two different responses to the call of Jesus. 
to walk with him. First of all, the rich young ruler. From Luke 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that's reaction number one. Here's reaction number two in the very next chapter. The story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Luke puts these stories right back to back against each other. To highlight the different responses of the rich. What did this case do? Like Jesus, he disadvantaged himself to the advantage of another. Now, I picked that phrase up from one of my colleagues, uh, some of the pastors in Perth during the week, and I thought, that's a wonderful phrase. Our willingness to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of another, to advantage another. Loving in the ways of God, the ways of Christ, are not easy. It's one of the reasons, in the end, why Jesus actually didn't accumulate a large crowd. Because his ways are difficult. I don't know what this looks like for you. And I'm thankful that this word of scripture just came in a series. And I just have to speak out the word of God and say, I I don't know what we do with this. There's something of the word of God that is a prophetic agitation. But yet that's what we need to wrestle with. Collectively and personally 
in our lives? What do we buy? How much do we buy? Where do we buy? Are we ethical and local? Do we tie ourselves in to the systems that are unjust and the unhealthy, unthoughtful wealth? We become a family of thrifters. Can I breathe now? We become a family of thrifters. I am sporting my thrift this morning. Just in some ways, largely an example set primarily by our children, by our girls, who nowadays tend to buy everything secondhand. And we were impressed with that. So we've joined them. Those of us who are employers, how much we pay against the backdrop of how much we profit, that really matters. I'm never sure in the end who determines which jobs and vocations should be paid high and which should be paid low. I just know a lot of hardworking people who've had to live on pretty low wages in life without opportunity to invest or save while their hard work contributes to someone else's excessive profit. Or the almost culturally accepted cash in hand system of payment that takes money out of the legitimate system of taxation and benefits our needs over others supports an illegal system of individual gain rather than contributing to a collective benefit. I don't know what you or I need to do with all of this, but the word of God sometimes needs to agitate us and to think again, what does this mean for me, for us? And maybe for some, you might even be thinking, what would I do? What could I do? What could we do as a congregation in this city of Perth? A new way of working our wealth for the good of the city. I, I don't come with you loads of ideas. I come agitated by a word of God. And maybe some folks would want to explore that. I'd be happy to explore it with you. Well, let's finish this. Let's read James 5, 7 to 9. It says, be patient then. <laughs> be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You know, one of the great things about being a pastor in a church is you get to hear about the amazing things that people are doing here and all over the place. And sometimes we might judge people because of their wealth when we know nothing of what they do all over the place.
And I am impatient about the inequity and injustice of our world. And I thank God for those who are doing incredible things. And this is talking about as a family not becoming an unhealthy family that is grumbling, complaining, moaning, judging, whether it's inwardly or outwardly. But rather that we would be a church of patience, <clears throat> not judging one another or others. Patience over grumbling. Perhaps the rich complaining about the poor or the poor complaining about the rich. But in this letter that James writes, James calls us to the healthier family way of what some commentators call prophetic patience. Prophetic patience. Knowing that one day the Lord will make right that which is your wrong. Yet in the meantime, affirming wise challenge and warning about injustice and oppression. Both and. Rather than moaning and complaining and judging, that a, a prophetic patient, patient stands trusting that in the end God is working towards a new way and representing that new kingdom way with wise challenge, wise living, wise words that align with the kingdom of God. Prophetic patience. It is active waiting, patiently knowing and trusting the final righteous and redemptive action of God, yet also patiently holding and declaring and enacting Jesus' teaching regarding the kingdom of God, righteousness and justice, which are the foundation of our throne, his throne. Well, what a laugh we had trying to come up with a song to close with following this service. And I suppose the thing about the word of God and the prophetic voice that it brings is that it does challenge. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And at heart, this is a matter of the heart. What will we do in response to the agitation of the prophetic voice of the word of God and the prophetic voice of his kingdom that one day will be enacted, no doubt. And all that accumulation will amount to nothing, really. The investment that we make for the kingdom will be the only one that matters. Once heard a joke about a man who appeared in heaven and when he got to the gates and St. Peter said to him, welcome. What have you come with? And he produced a, a solid gold bullion out of his hand. And he said, I've brought this. And Peter looked at him and said, what a pavement. Because that's what the streets of heaven apparently are made of. It's of nothing. No worth. So how do we use what we have in this generation, for this city and beyond? I leave that agitation with you. Not because I'm perfect. I leave it with myself. But to ask the question, what will I do as a man 
who lives as one of the rich in the world, however poor I think I might be. Would you stand with us? Oh, Lord, your word is sobering at times and discomforting. And Lord, sometimes we just have to let it linger on us. Pray that for myself, Lord. Work on my heart. Work on our hearts. Purify my heart so that our hearts may be as gold and precious silver. Not our bank balances, our wallets, our investments, but our hearts. And so, Lord, speak and purify our hearts. For out of the purity of heart, we will live well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.